Good morning. You might like to keep your Bibles open pay on that page 1201 to 1 Peter. Uh, we've been working through the book of 1 Peter, which is a great thing to be doing. It helps us keep stuff in context as we go through. And one of the things that you might have noticed uh, from last week, or maybe even from this week, is that God's people uh, have a task ahead of them. In fact, in verse 9 it says, We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That reminds us who we are that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a task for us to be doing as God's people. Uh, in fact, if you think back through the Old Testament, wasn't the, right, the, the purpose of God's people was to be a light to the nations, to declare the goodness and the greatness of God to a world that so desperately needed to know who God was and what he did. In fact, one of the failings of the Old Testament people is to do that regularly and consistently. And before we start throwing stones, we're going to see some of the challenges of this passage for us today. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, we have seen that we should be people who are filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy. You should be excited about what God has done. You should be excited about what the value God places in you and where he's taking you. You should be excited, but you should also be excited because that is a message that those around us so desperately need to hear. If you want people to hear the good news of Jesus and you want people to know, have the opportunity to follow Jesus, how should you go about it? How should you live as a follower of Jesus in a world that's not always excited by people who follow Jesus? Uh, we've seen and heard of terrible examples of Christians who've misused their position or been offensive as they've wanted to share the good news of Jesus with the world around them. Uh, they've often used the Bible more like a brick or a sledgehammer and we, we, we cringe at their lack of, ins- lack of sensitivity and maybe the way that they do it. But sometimes we actually stop doing it ourselves. We stop sharing the goodness of God. See, bad examples are no excuse for us to do nothing. Let me ask a question I asked before, but do it in another way. What is the best way for you and me as followers of Jesus to influence our society for a good that's eternal? To share the gospel with them. And when opposition comes our way, as it certainly did for the people that have been written to in Turkey... How is the best way for you and I as followers of Jesus to influence the society that we live in for an eternity? Uh, big questions, aren't they? How about I pray? Our Lord and our God, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that your word will speak to us, it will correct our wrong thinking and give us right thinking and actions so that we as your people, with an inheritance that fills us with joy and excitement, might declare the goodness of that inheritance to a world that so desperately needs to know. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, last week, Dave helpfully reminded us of the importance of context, and you could pick up the 1 Peter and just start reading from chapter 2, verse 11, and you'd miss the good news. I've covered it, some of that already. You see, we have an inheritance. We have a hope that can never perish, spoil or fade. We have a hope won for us by Jesus who's paid the debt of our sin and wiped away its guilt. 
that should be exciting for us. And with that hope, with that unbelievably good news, we should want others to know about it, and that should affect the way we live. See, 1 Peter says, this is what God has done for you, and this is how you should live in response to what God has done for you. And so my bet is that if you really do understand the goodness of the gospel, you're thinking through the question of how do I share that goodness with others? How should I live now, knowing that we live in a broken world and my future is somewhere else? Those should be two questions that should go through our thinking on a regular basis. How can we live now so that others might have an eternity, the same eternity God has won for us? Well, verse 11 puts it fairly straightforward. It's pretty easy, actually, just in case you wanted to know, if you're about to tune out, at least listen to this part of it. God's word calls on you to be people who battle sin and live good lives. The two challenges. All very straightforward, isn't it? Battle sin, live good lives. But verse 11 begins by reminding ourselves where we're heading. It picks up on something that was said right at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. Heaven is our home. We are passing through, if you're a Colin Buchanan fan. We are foreigners or exiles. We're temporary residents in this world. And heaven is your home. Now, that doesn't mean you stop valuing life on earth today. It doesn't tell you to go and live in a commune, uh, no matter how appealing that might be sometimes. Verse 12 stops you from thinking that way. What it means is that if we are, if heaven is our home, we don't want to put down roots that compromise our eternal future. We don't want to adopt the values and the uh, practices of those in the world to the point that it might compromise our eternity. And what we see is that living in a world where we, which is not our home um, actually puts us in a dilemma. We don't want to adopt the patterns of those living in the world, but we want to live for Jesus, which puts us in conflict. Verse 11 highlights this conflict. Abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul the sinful desires that wage war against your soul if you ever get the idea that sin is powerful don't lose that reality but don't ever get the idea that you should give in to that sin and indulge in it you see this verse reminds us that that's not an option for us as God's people something that I desire to do something that I do naturally without a second thought, no matter how many times I try to resist it, does not mean that I should just give in and indulge. I need to wage war against sin in my life. And guess what? So do you. You need to wage war against the sin in your life. You see, if you follow Jesus, then you are in a war against sin. Now, saying that, I don't mean that you need to transform society so that everyone around you is moral. I don't, it's not, don't mean that you need to pass legislation so that everyone else doesn't, knows exactly what sin is. You see, if I could just turn all of society into a moral world, I would still need to battle the sin that wages war against my soul. 
the sin in my own life. The verse gives us this very clear idea that the sin in my life, and might I say the sin in your life, is not uncontrollable. Yes, we are saved by Jesus into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, but you're not to be indulging in the sin that comes naturally. You are to avoid it, to keep away from it, to not indulge it, to battle against it so that it doesn't control you. You see, as God's people, that sort of thinking alone is radically different from the world that we live in, isn't it? The society that we live in promotes the idea that we should indulge what comes naturally, that we should pursue whatever our heart desires, that we should live our best life now, that we should embrace whatever is natural for us. And you can see that thinking's permeated those who claim to be followers of Jesus. It's perfectly understandable for our society to want to indulge whatever they perceive to come naturally. They don't claim to follow God. They don't claim to be God's people. But you and I do. And God's word urges us. In fact, it's a little stronger than that. It strongly urges you. It begs you. Abstain from the desires of your flesh. The desire to indulge the sin that wages war against your soul. Wage war against that sin that goes around and around in your head, that never leaves your mind. Wage war against that sin that is in your heart, that tries to tell you it's not all that bad. Wage war against that sin, whatever it might be. Maybe we should get some practical thinking happening here. Now we know what we should be doing. What is the sin that you are battling against our memory verse and this passage remind us that we should be that all of us have something there what is waging war against your soul greed selfishness gossip lust pride materialism, slander, sloth. That only took me 30 seconds to think about. The list could go on and on. What is the sin that is what you are waging war against? Now this passage makes it very clear that living as God's people in this world, as citizens of heaven... You and I need to battle sin in our own lives. But battling sin is harder to do if you don't try and replace the desire for sin with a desire to do something else. And verse 12 helps us see what that better desire is. Verse 12, live good lives. Live good, God-honouring lives. Because of the inheritance God has already won for you, live good, God-honouring lives. Because you want to battle against a sin in your life, live good, God-honouring lives. And note this, you will be living good, God-honouring lives and it won't be in a Christian ghetto. It will be in the world. 
filled with people who don't care two hoots about God. Filled with people who don't care two hoots about living good, God-honouring lives because they don't know God. That's what Christian living is all about. And verse 12 goes on to explain the reason that we are to live good, God-honouring lives is so that those around us might see what we do and might see how we live. And even if they don't like it, they might be caused to give glory to God. Let me try and unpack verse 12 a little bit more. I don't think you read verse 12 saying that if you live a good God-honouring life, everyone will be lining up to become followers of Jesus. The passage is saying that living good God-honouring lives will glorify, will, will lead to people glorifying God. We're going to look at a few weeks' time at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we see that living good God-honouring lives might cause some people to have a, a reason for the ask, ask about the hope that you have. And verse 15 says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. You see, living good God-honouring lives may well cause people to ask the question, why is it that you have the hope that you do? We're going to leave that for a few more weeks when we look at that passage. Let's look at a few other things this verse is saying. Verse 12 says that one day Jesus will return. How does that reality shape the way that you and I live? How does it shape your living? The fact that Jesus will return, how does it shape your prayers for the lost? How does it reflect in your passion for the lost to follow Jesus? If we're called to live good, God-honouring lives so that others might at least come to hear of the, what Jesus has done, if you have a passion for the lost, then the challenge to live those good, God-honouring lives is real, isn't it? There are two ways, I think, that pagans, that is, those who don't follow Jesus will glorify God on the day that he visits us. One is, as people who live in rebellion to God, being forced to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, the sovereign rule of the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But 1 Peter certainly gives us the idea that there's another way that people might, pagans might glorify God on the day that he visits us, because they've turned from being pagans, for not people who don't follow Jesus, to being people who are followers of Jesus, as they asked you of the hope that you have and that you've spoken of the goodness of the gospel. You see, either way, verse 11 and 12 is a bit like a mission statement for us as God's people in a, in a world which doesn't know God. Live as followers of God with a gospel heart, with a desire for others to follow Jesus as well, we would do well to heed God's word here. I think it's all too easy for us as God's people to think we have some sort of right in society to force others to live the way that we want. That's not what Peter talks about. And it goes on to give us some examples. 
Example number one, how do we live as people who follow the supreme ruler of the universe? And I don't mean King Jong-un, I mean Yahweh. How do we, as people who follow Yahweh, live under people like him? Or people like, what's our current Prime Minister's name? Hasn't changed this week, has it? No, that's right. ScoMo. How do we live under, as God's people, under whoever it might be? It's tempting to say, well, I don't need to listen to what our leaders say because my leader's bigger and better. My leader's the leader of the whole world. But guess what? Our leader tells us to live under their authority. We could justify our actions and say, because we know so much more, we are so much better educated into right living because we have God's word, the one who made us. We have the manufacturer's instructions. We should be the ones that impose our thinking on everyone else. Maybe the early church would have done that, we could argue, but they didn't have enough power. But we certainly have the power to do it now. But no, that's not what this passage says. Verse 13, it says, submit to those in authority. All those in authority in your land. Police, politicians at all levels. Even those in authority in church, in your house, in your work. Those who are under, those who have authority over you in whatever volunteer organisations you're in, submit to all in authority over you. That's a big call, isn't it? You see, as God's people, we're not a rebel political movement. We're not trying to establish kingdom on this earth. We are people rescued by God for an eternity. We are people whose home is heaven. People who are God-honouring, God-glorifying, who are on our way to somewhere far better. And in light of that, we should be people who are known to our rulers, known to those in authority over us as people who submit to their authority, not who try and rebel, not who try and set up their alternative rule and kingdom. Note here, you're not to submit to their authority because you agree with it. You're not to submit to their authority because you like it or it made your life safer and better. You submit to their authority because you want to glorify God. It's also worthwhile knowing that submitting to someone's authority does not mean you obey, you obey everything that they do. Remember Daniel submitted himself to the authority of Nebuchadnezzar openly defied Nebuchadnezzar and submitted himself to the punishment, whatever that might be, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hand out to him. And by doing this, we are told that we will silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people. And just for the record, Christians who took this seriously transformed the world that they lived in. It led to many others becoming followers of Jesus. Yes, they got distracted and ended up wanting to set up their own kingdom on earth. And that undermined everything they stood for. 
but Christians who stood for this, who, who put this into practice, ended up leading many others to follow Jesus. Verse 16 unpacks how we should live. Live as free people. You might well live under their authority. But as free people, you can happily live under the authority of anyone, can't you? Don't use your freedom to cover up evil. Rather, live lives as slaves to God. Show proper respect for everyone. Not about just showing respect to those who agree with you or those who promise to support whatever you value. Love your family. And note here it says, your fellow followers of God. Who should we fear as we live in a world that's broken and hostile? Fear God. Don't even have to fear those who might persecute you. You don't have to fear those who might accuse you of doing wrong. You don't even have to fear the emperor. And remember what the emperor was doing. Fear God. Fear God only. Well, how, how do we go with those instructions? Uh, it's easy to read the way the early church took them. How do we go with them? Uh, at work or at home, are you known as someone who is honouring to those in authority? Do you show proper respect? To all who you come across. That's a bit harder, isn't it? Do you use your freedom as God's people to do evil? Now, we would probably just use our freedom to be selfish or to get our own way. Are you someone who loves the, fa- loves the family of believers? And how do you show that love in a real and practical way? Do you honour your local, state and federal members? And since few of us might meet them in person, if you had them over for your Christmas dinner, would it be a really embarrassing time? As they recalled everything you wrote to them? Or as they recounted everything that you spoke about them when they weren't there? This is not light, fluffy Christianity, is it? This is real stuff. This is not about defending my rights and making sure my life is peaceful. This is about living the way God called us to be. Let's move on. If you thought that was tough, wait till you read the next bit. Verse 18 speaks of slaves submitting to your masters. And the temptation... To say is that, well, we're not slaves, that mustn't apply to us. Um, we often think of slavery as just the British and American version of slavery, but in the first century, slaves did exist, and yes, they were mistreated, but generally, they were well treated. And the slaves in the first century Roman Empire included doctors and nurses and teachers and musicians. So if you're a doctor or a nurse, you understand slavery. You see, in in the first century, there was extensive Roman legislation that talked about how slaves should be treated. 
and, and paid. They were normally paid and they could even purchase their freedom. Yes, they did have a lower legal status. They had a lower social status. What might equate to the slave of the first century Roman Empire in our culture today? It's not a perfect fit, but I think it it would certainly include people in the workforce. We could spend forever arguing about that, but let's ask ourselves the question... What does a passage like this have to say to those of us who work? Which is not me because I only come to church on Sundays. It says pretty clearly, doesn't it, that we should work well. Because we fear God. Not have a fear of our boss. And we should do that whether our boss is considerate or harsh. In other words, work well whether you like him or not, or her or not. Now it's worth worthwhile noting that the word here for the, the boss who is harsh sort of takes into the idea the boss who is crooked and dishonest and morally evil. So if your boss is crooked, dishonest and morally evil, who doesn't pay you well and has terrible working conditions... Keep working well. Tell me you can't change jobs? No. Remember, first century Roman slaves could buy their freedom. But until you do, submit to your boss. It's incredible. It's incredibly challenging, isn't it? And why do we do this? Because we want to honour God, we fear God, and we want to speak to people about the reason for the hope that we have that is not here on this earth, it is in eternity, an inheritance that has been won for us that can never perish, spoil or fade. There's a comment in verse 20 about people who get in trouble for doing silly things at work. It's your own fault. Learn not to stuff up next time. But don't think that getting in trouble for being stupid at work is persecution for serving God. There's lots in this passage, isn't there? Let me tell you there's lots of challenge. Now, I've only highlighted a few ways that I think this passage should challenge us. Maybe you need to rethink the way that you live as a follower of Jesus in a non-Christian world so that you do live for the sake of the gospel and the glory and honour of God. I don't think a passage like this enables us to seek comfortable Christianity A passage like this doesn't give us a safe focus. A passage like this doesn't spur us on to pursue our religious freedoms and defend our rights. In fact, look at what the passage does present as the perfect example of living under unjust rule. The perfect example is Jesus had all the power to do whatever he wanted, to stop whatever he needed. And he allowed them because he was living for something bigger and better. There's a lot in this passage, isn't there? I'm sure that sparked a few questions and comments. How about we pray and keep doing the thinking about how we live as God's people
in this world. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for the clear challenges it brings to us. Lord, we pray that you'll forgive those times that we've lived and gratified our sinful nature and not waged war against us, the sin that attacks us. Lord, we pray that in your grace and mercy you'll keep shaping us to live as your people, that you'll, get, you'll empower us to live in, as your people in a world which doesn't like you. Lord, help us to live good, God-honouring lives. Help us to show grace. Help us, Lord, to seek about the transformation of people's hearts so that they will glorify you on the day that you visit. And help us to do that regardless of what it might cost us today. Lord, we pray that you'll help us in the context of work to submit ourselves to those that are our bosses. Lord, we pray that in the context of living in a society with people in authority over us, you'll give us the courage to trust your word. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.